everyone. Welcome to this CSPI podcast. I'm here with Sean McNeekin. He's a professor of history at Bard University and the author of Stalin's War, A New History of World War II. Uh, Sean, how are you doing today? Fine, Richard. Uh, thanks for having me on. Yeah, absolutely. It's a pleasure. I mean, I just finished your book a, a few days ago and it's, you know, it's mind blowing. Uh, if so, it, it's, I think the less the fewer books you've read about World War II and Stalin, the more mind-blowing it is. So I've, I have a little background in the history, so it wasn't all completely new to me. Uh, but I think if someone is just a regular American who goes through their lives and accepted the conventional story about World War II, I think their minds are just going to be you know, completely blown uh, by this book. Uh, so maybe, maybe I answered this question already, but let me ask you, why does the world need another uh, Stalin book or another World War II book? Well, I think that when it comes to the telling of history, particularly with uh, huge publicly commemorated events like the Second World War, uh, the story tends to settle into these predictable grooves. Uh, a lot of it is simple repetition. I mean, things get almost worn smooth a little bit, like a, a kind of a rock turning into a pebble going downstream. And, you know, all the uh, all the unpleasant bits or the parts that just don't fit the story of their narrative, they all kind of get smoothed out. And so we end up with this heroic narrative of the good war and um, every foreign policy guru wants us always to go back to Munich and learn the lessons about appeasement and about uh, Hitler and the Nazis and this kind of epitome of, of evil. I mean, it's almost become a little bit of a religion now, the religion of kind of understanding the world through the prism of the evils of Nazism and Hitler in the Second World War. Um, I just think so much is left out of that story. I mean, people have always understood there have been some problems with it, uh, Poland being an obvious example, how does a war uh, begun to liberate Poland, end up with Poland's subjugation? Um, how is it that a war, uh, I, I mean, even if you just look at it from, from the perspective of, of one of the classic belligerents like Britain, um, you know, the, the soldiers were told they were fighting for king, country, and empire, and they were, they were fighting to preserve the liberal values such as they were of the British Empire, perhaps hypocritical in some respects, but there, there were some that were liberal, and uh, they end up essentially presiding over the demise of the British Empire. Um, in all kinds of uh, ways in which the story doesn't really fit, if you look at Eastern Europe or Northern Asia, uh, war against totalitarianism, Nuremberg trials, you have one of the two leading totalitarian powers sitting in judgment of the other with its own crimes uh, not being exposed. Um, there are all kinds of problems with the story, and I think most people are kind of vaguely aware that perhaps it wasn't all quite as clean and neat as uh, we're often told um, in the dialogue. But I think a lot of it we simply need to be reminded of. A lot of the history just got either kind of swept under the rug or forgotten. And and we also just know much more now since the Russian archives were open. I, I think that's the the earliest part of the answer why I think we needed a new history. Although a lot of specialists have been have been mining the Russian archives now for two or three decades. I think the general reader is not really aware of how much we have learned that we didn't previously know. Yeah, so uh, so I'm interested in the American involvement in World War II because it seems like it was sort of the more most up for grabs. I mean, the UK and Germany had this rivalry, obviously going back. The US had no obvious uh, interest, um, and it, you know, I think the the most people just think, oh, we were attacked on Pearl Harbor. It was just a surprise attack, and then we went to war there. But you know, as you point out, and other historians have pointed out, there was a lot that led up to that. Um, how soon do you think FDR uh, wanted wanted uh, the U.S. to be involved in the European war? I mean, it's clear by 1940 when he's running uh, about keeping the U.S. out of war, he sort of wants to be involved. But, but how soon do you think he really wanted to, to, to throw his head in the ring? Well, I think there was always a lot of dissembling. I mean, certainly when he goes on 
on the hustings in, in the fall of 1940, showing late October, really, right before the election. And he says, your boys are not going to are not going to die in any foreign wars. And and it's not just disingenuous. I mean, he's practically kind of you know lying through the side of his mouth as far as the U.S. involvement in the war, which is, yeah, again, not that deep yet. So far in 1940, it was only to the extent of the kind of lend, uh, the, not even Lend-Lease, the, the basis for destroyers deal where the U.S. had begun Britain had begun almost mortgaging its empire in exchange for uh, for gaining some of these 50 World War One era somewhat decrepit destroyers uh, to replenish the stocks of the Royal Navy. Um, Roosevelt, I think, was certainly committed to uh, to saving Britain, to keeping Britain in the war, to fighting uh, in some form Nazi Germany. I would actually go back even a little bit further, and I'd say that, although I know you want to talk about the U.S. involvement in the war, I think to some extent, while you're right that Britain and Germany had that rivalry, and they had fought, obviously, in the First World War, and that helped to inform the thinking of statesmen, in particular Churchill, who had this well-developed historical imagination, uh, but there was an argument in which Britain didn't necessarily have that much an interest in who ruled Poland either, um, and the U.S. I think even less so. Um, I think a lot of what was going on in the British, and then even in the U.S. case, because I think Roosevelt was probably deriving some of his thinking from those of Churchill and other British statesmen. Uh, there was a little bit of this inertia, a little bit of this thought of kind of being trapped in the categories of the First World War. Uh, most Americans didn't really share that view necessarily. I think most Americans had come to see our involvement in the First World War as a mistake. Uh, a lot of Americans were, particularly in, in the so-called heartland in the Midwest, um, but really throughout the country, it wasn't just a matter of the upper Midwest. Um, this wariness of European affairs that obviously had deep roots in, in the U.S. foreign policy tradition, certainly deep than in Britain, where there had always been this notion of kind of keeping a balance of power on the, on the continent. Um, but I think both Roosevelt and Churchill had a very clear sense very early on, in both cases, even before, I mean, in Churchill's case, even before he was in Downing Street, and in Roosevelt's case, long before the U.S. had gotten into the war, that there was this kind of general strategic interest that was partly ideological and moral, obviously opposition to Nazi Germany and everything the Nazis stood for, but also this idea that they didn't want the Germans to dominate uh, the continent. Uh, to be a little more specific, um, I think Roosevelt's hands were tied. I think Roosevelt would have loved to get the U.S. Uh, more deeply involved in the conflict uh, earlier in 1940. Uh, he would have loved to be involved in, in some form, even possibly in, 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 in the form of a mediator negotiator as early as 1939. And there are, there's kind of evidence of Roosevelt trying to, to take a hand in the tiller and, and to take some sort of a role. Um, but certainly with the passage of the Lend-Lease Act in March 1941, I mean, you really could call that belligerence in all but name. I mean, this basically gave the U.S. president the power based on, on little more than his own good faith and interpretation um, to, to tap the vast hydraulic resources of, of uh, the U.S. economy on behalf of any power that he chose. And it was quite clear that it was directed against Nazi Germany and even made it somewhat explicit in defeating amendments that uh, they were not going to exclude uh, the USSR, even though Stalin, of course, had his pact with Hitler, so that it was already effectively targeting Nazi Germany and that any country that the U.S. saw as potentially useful in the struggle against Nazi Germany was eligible for uh, vast amounts of technology transfer, uh, war industrial aid, um, financial subvention, even if indirectly in the form of loans. Um, so I, I certainly think by, my, by March 1941, to that extent, the die was cast long before uh, Pearl Harbor. Yeah. And I mean, another uh, thing that seems important that you uh, bring to light and talk about a great deal is 
the actual placement of Soviet spies uh, within the American government and also the British government. And particularly, I mean, I was particularly struck by uh, Henry Dexter White and his role in giving the ultimatum to Japan. Can you talk about that a little bit? How, how big of a role do you think these spies actually played in directing U.S. energy towards Nazi Germany instead of being outraged at whatever the Soviet Union was doing at any particular time? Well, sure. I mean, Harry Dexter White, It's it's been known fairly firmly since the Venona decrypts back in the 1990s. And and a lot of the information we also had coming out of kind of Soviet defectors and memoirs, such as that of one of his handlers in the NKVD, that, that he was reporting regularly to the Soviet secret police. I mean, that much is basically known now. One can obviously argue about the interpretation of the, the exact extent of, of the influence. He didn't belong to the Communist Party. He wasn't necessarily, quote unquote, taking orders. A lot of this he probably did out of his own convictions. And I think that's true of a lot of the assets. In fact, to some extent, the term agents of influence, I think, is a little bit more useful than spy as such, because it wasn't necessarily always a matter of the passing on of secrets and the sense of kind of dead drops. Uh, particularly after the uh, after the U.S. entered the war and the U.S. and Soviet were allies, it wasn't even secret at all. I mean, it, we could just walk right over the embassy and, and casually discuss kind of reorienting American industry to Soviet needs and specifications. Um, that that is to say, a lot of it had to do with policy. And that's where I think some of those arcane kind of he said, she said arguments about whether or not so-and-so was you know, agent number 19 or whatever the number is in the NKVD files kind of misses the point, which is that far more important than who was either spying or sharing classified information was who is influencing policy. And so in the case of, of Harry Dexter White, you can clearly see it in the kind of draconian export controls uh, applied vis-a-vis uh, -vis Japan. And then finally, the composition of the so-called whole note, this almost the kind of the last ditch saloon effort to mediate uh, the, the burgeoning crisis between the US and Japan in late November 1941, uh, where we do know that Harry Dexter White at least played a hand in, at least drafted, perhaps not the final version, which had to be signed off on by Hull, the Secretary of State. We, we do know that he had a hand in drafting it. Um, you know, but I think he couldn't have been influential. And here's the other way in which, you know, I, I'd caution against over-interpreting or exaggerating the role of kind of spies, assets, agents of influence as such. They were effective because they were able to influence policy in a direction where the president, in, in, in this case, Roosevelt, was kind of already inclined to go. That is to say, if there hadn't already been this desire on the part of President Roosevelt to stand up to Japan, um, uh, to take a belligerent line to stand up to Nazi Germany to more or less sympathize with Soviet interests. Um, you know, and, and events did play a little bit of a role in this. For example, after uh, Barbarossa, after Nazi Germany invades the Soviet Union, uh, the climate of opinion becomes, of course, even more favorable, almost hysterically favorable vis-a-vis -vis the Soviets, so that it actually became much easier later that year for someone like Harry Dexter White to influence policy. You know, shortly before Barbarossa, there was actually a Soviet spy case where a couple of aviation attaches uh, there was actually talk of having them deported, and they were actually scheduled for uh, deportation. These are kind of Soviet spies, you know, actual Soviet uh, subjects who were were spying. Um, and uh, and in the end, basically because of because of Barbarossa, suddenly the climate of opinion changes so radically in a pro-Soviet direction that not only are they not expelled, but uh, the Soviets actually burrow even more deeply into the U.S. government and, and kind of U.S. Uh, what we now call aerospace, that is to say, the aviation industry and, you know, even kind of going around and, and visiting tank testing facilities. And a lot of it was actually done quite, quite out in the open and broad daylight, uh, what in retrospect really seems quite shocking.
Yeah. So, I mean, that, that's a great point. So I was thinking, well, you know, this, the Soviet, I mean, so yeah, I mean, giving classified information to the Soviets would have been a, a much smaller thing than actually influencing American policy and what kind of demands we made on Japan. So yeah, I think spying, you know, under, understates the influence at the same time. Yeah, I think you're right that, uh, yeah, FDR was open to this stuff. So, so one thing I was wondering while I was reading the book was, okay, the Soviets were just really, really good. Uh, at having an ideology or, or their intelligence, whatever, that appealed to a lot of people in the U.S. and the U.K. And somebody like, you know, a country like Nazi Germany or Japan did not. And that seems like part of it. But part of it is just where FDR sympathies lies. Like some people in military intelligence, uh, for example, were less sympathetic to the Soviet Union. A lot of people in the State Department. And I don't know if anyone is sympathetic to Nazi Germany, but there were some who were, you know, say less, you know, extreme in their uh, anti-Nazi feelings. Uh, so so you, th- you could have imagined an alternative scenario where, say, there was a different president and uh, there could have been agents of influence on the other side. I mean, is, is that possible to imagine or were just Nazism and Sovietism? The Soviet, you know, Soviet communism, just so different uh, that one sort of had this international appeal while the other didn't. Well, I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, certainly communism, because of this abstract ideal of the classless society and equality and, and the vaguer message that probably a lot of people didn't fully understand what, what it meant in practice, but they had this notion that they're kind of on the side of the angels or of the poor or the underdogs. That's obviously always going to be a little bit more appealing to your kind of vaguely sympathetically inclined person than, let's say, uh, Nazi ideology, which doesn't really export uh, much beyond the, the Germanic-speaking peoples of, of Central Europe. I mean, aside from maybe some vague notion where you know, notions of fascism, you could have your own version of it in a country like Italy, for example, where it actually even predated Nazism, or perhaps in, in the Balkans, in a place like Hungary. I think that's that's definitely part of it. You're always going to get a lot more elite sympathizing, but we should exaggerate that. I mean, you pointed that out, the State Department, maybe our, our view of it these days is, of course, that it tends to be a lot more progressive, and there's almost this kind of confluence between the State Department and a lot of the other elite media institutions in a certain worldview, and these days they're promoting kind of American progressive ideology around the world. Uh, but in the 1930s, I mean, Roosevelt actually saw the State Department, believe it or not, as a hotbed of reaction, of kind of anti-Soviet sentiment. He's, he's constantly reassuring Stalin that He's keeping a good eye on the State Department and to some extent uh, purging key committees of undesirables. I mean, there's this almost quasi book burning that takes place in 1937 where uh, the Soviet library, which had been assembled by the East European division, is essentially kind of scattered to the winds and they actually break it apart. Uh, there's a purge conducted then. There's another purge in 1943. A lot of that obviously did depend, just as you were suggesting, on, on Roosevelt and where his own sympathies lay. I mean, I think some of it was his affluent background. There's a little bit of a sense of noblesse oblige. Obviously, his wife, Eleanor, she kind of moves in these progressive circles, a lot of whom tended to sympathize with the Soviet Union. It was Roosevelt who had first recognized the Soviet Union in November 1933, whereas the Republican administrations, the three ones preceding under Harding and the Coolidge and even Hoover had not recognized the Soviet Union. You know, so there was an element where Roosevelt and uh, the Democrats, obviously not all of them, there were a lot of conservative Southern Democrats, um, but that is the kind of social circles around Roosevelt, I think, in addition to the president himself, were definitely more inclined to sympathize uh, with the Soviets. Um, One could certainly imagine, uh, with a different type of president being in the White House, if not maybe an uh, an all-out kind of full-on 
pro-Nazi foreign policy. It's kind of hard to imagine that. Uh, certainly a more authentically neutral one. I mean, Hoover's a great counterexample. You know, Hoover was uh, kind of the deus ex machina to some extent behind the scenes. He's the ex-president. He has the stature. He still gives speeches. He's not maybe supremely popular because of the fact that the depression kind of had glommed onto him. That is, you know, a lot of people still blamed him for, for the depression. Uh, but that's at Hoover, and, and he, he was quite clear about this in his foreign policy, that he did think that the Roosevelt administration was, was somewhat wrongheaded. Um, but we do know Roosevelt was, he was popular in the sense that he, he continuously won re-election. So to some extent, even if he might have been a little bit of a dissembler, on the hustings in 1940 about the true nature of his foreign policy, he was genuinely popular. But I, I do think a lot just depended on his own personal influence and probably the social circles around him. Um, so that, right, these agents of influence would not have been able to influence a different type of president. You know, and a lot of it did depend on circumstances. You know, let's say had had Hitler not invaded the Soviet Union in June 1941, I think it would have been much a much much tougher sell to get the U.S. really fully behind any type of aid program to the Soviets or really kind of taking Stalin's position on various foreign policy questions. A lot of that just played right into Roosevelt's hands. I mean, it was the, uh, I call it almost a public relations miracle, you know, that, that a lot of people were still quite wary of Stalin and the Soviets up until Barbarossa. But, but things really turned quite radically in his direction in terms of public opinion after the German invasion. Yeah. Um, and I think a lot of people listening to this and a lot of people familiar with the history might say, oh, well, you know, good. I mean, any normal person should favor the Soviet Union over Nazi Germany, even if people acknowledge that the Soviet Union was really bad. And I, I think you I think you puncture, you know, this myth of the uh, of Nazi Germany being so obviously worse in, say, 1939 to 1941. So as you point out, uh, between 39 and 41, Stalin invaded seven countries, the same as Hitler, sometimes in conjecture with Hitler. So, so, so with Hitler, you have Poland, Denmark, Luxembourg, the Netherlands, Belgium, and France. Uh, Stalin, you have Manchuria, Poland, Finland, Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, and Romania. And another thing was the, the, uh, the Soviet occupation was pretty much worse almost across the board. I mean, you know, look at the, you know, compare Hitler invading Netherlands and Luxembourg to what the Soviet Union was doing in uh, uh, Latvia and, and uh, Estonia and, and the, you know, the, in, the in the Baltics. And then the, um, and then even when you have like this direct comparison, uh, when they both invade Poland um, within a few months, uh, Germany from the West and the Soviet Union from the East, uh, you, the way you put it, you say there's uh, geometrically more uh, uh prisoners taken in the Soviet occupation than in the Nazi occupation. So can you talk about that a little bit? I'm sort of the, I mean, these are, these are both obviously evil regimes, but I mean, is right. there really justification for anyone having believed at the time that, uh, that the Germans were so much worse than the Soviets? Well, there was obviously hypocrisy, and it was there right from the get-go when it came to Britain and France, and they, they literally have to have this discussion in September 1939. Why are we declaring war on only one of the two countries invading Poland? Uh, some of it was uh, Soviet manipulation and very clever diplomacy and statesmanship. And a lot of it had to do even with just the way they negotiated the territory in Poland, that because the Soviets were so late in invading, the Germans crossed the demarcation lines, they did this territorial swap. So the Soviets ended up forfeiting a lot of central Poland and taking Lithuania instead. And that way they could kind of pose and pretend they hadn't really invaded Poland. They had only taken this slice of Eastern Poland, most of which used to belong to the Soviets or supposedly tracked the Curzon line favored by the, the, the allies, Britain and France in 1919-1920, which actually was, was both untrue in terms of the map and was also highly misleading in terms of how the country was actually uh, partitioned and that the Soviet 
there was was far from a token. And and as you you just pointed out, yes, the Soviets actually deported a kind of geometrically larger number of, of prisoners, and as we know, of course, also murdered uh, huge numbers of them in cold blood, what we now call the Katyn Forest Massacre. Some of it might be also bit of hindsight. I mean, after the war, really not even right after the war, but kind of a few decades after the war, once people started researching the Holocaust in depth and they learned about the death camps, they came to say, well, well, look, you know, what Nazi Germany did was kind of this other, almost this other category evil in, in singling out a single a single ethno-religious group and this premeditated mass murder and the gassing and all the rest of it. Um, and I, I fully understand that argument, um, but I do think that as historians, we also have to be true to the time. And so and if you are looking at the period from 1939 to 1941, it's by no means obvious that you have some sort of a, a clear choice between these two totalitarian regimes, which are, after all, effectively allied to one another. And people raised these points. Uh, in the Senate, for example, in the public airwaves in 1941, where they were debating whether or not the U.S. should uh, basically take sides and have this aggressive Lend-Lease policy vis-a-vis -vis the Soviets. I mean, Harry Truman, of all people, the future president, basically proposed on the Senate floor that that the U.S. should maybe aid the Soviets if it looked like the Germans were winning and aid the Germans if it looked like the Soviets were winning, which, which maybe seems callous and a little bit cynical. On the other hand, the point he was making, which a lot of people believed at the time, was that there wasn't a clear moral choice between the two regimes, uh, not entirely unlike what I suppose is usually attributed to Kissinger, the line about the Iran-Iraq war, it's a shame they can't both lose. You sympathize with the people caught in the crossfire, but again, making making out making this out to be some very clear moral crusade with kind of, you know, the light on one side and the darkness on the other is, is highly misleading. Um, and not, not just for the reason they'd invaded the same number of countries, but as you were pointing out, at least in the short run, the Soviets had done far more damage to the places they had occupied. I mean, what Sovietization practice was not just the mass deportation of these kind of class enemies, people of the wrong category of people or suspected of, for whatever reason, uh, disloyalty or perhaps sympathy with uh, some outside power. Uh, but they also, of course, uh, they looted these places. I mean, you know, they looted the banks, they looted the institutions, they nationalized the property. They, uh, at the end of the war, and this happens once again in 1944-45 when they reinvade all of these places, I mean, they, 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 send, they send vast amounts of, of industrial and, and and kind of manufacturing plant back to Russia. Uh, they have these whole looting commissions. I mean, what Sovietization meant, it was sort of a, a kind of an updated, maybe ideological, per, ideologically perfumed version of kind of what uh, one critic called the administrative of Genghis Khan. I mean, it was the most brutal type of, of war by conquest with, you know, almost like these rights to loot, uh, the rights to rape in the case of uh, the Red Army notoriously crashing into East Germany and Hungary and these other places. Uh, you know, this was an absolutely brutal regime. I mean, however unconscionably brutal the Nazi regime was, again, it's, it's, it's hard to say there was some clear moral choice and certainly not one that would have been apparent to most ordinary Americans in 1941 when some of these choices were being made. Yeah, and we're just talking about 30, 1939 to 41. We're not even right. considering the 1920s and the 1930s and the mass starvation, right. which had no equivalent in Nazi Germany, you know, as bad as they were. Um, one, one, you know, about this issue of sort of the moral cause. I mean, I, I found one passage that's provocative and I found fascinating was about uh, the differences between uh, Stalin and Hitler regarding how they approached the Geneva Convention. So if I could just read uh, a little bit from this, because it's so interesting and worth quoting at length. So you write, it is 
not mere hair splitting to observe that Moscow, unlike Berlin, refused to accept mediation regarding the treatment of war prisoners. The contrast reflected something important about the two strains of totalitarianism. From the hunger plan to the mass shooting of Jews that some historians now refer to as the Shoah by bullets, it was already unmistakably clear in 1941 that Hitler and his officials were willing to treat conquered people with unfathomable cruelty. But they were just as emphatic about protecting their own soldiers and allies if they were taken prisoner. Indeed, the under uncomfortable truth of the matter is that Nazi Germany, even if only to protect Hitler's beloved Aryans and other people joining his anti-Bolshevik crusade captured by the enemy, was and at least sometimes behaved like a signatory to the Geneva Convention of 1929 on war prisoners. And the USSR was not and did not. In August 1941, the governments of Germany and its allies transmitted extensive lists of, burge of the burgeoning ranks of captured Soviet prisoners of war to the Soviet embassy in Ankara. Molotov never replied. So this, I mean, this, this, is, this is a fascinating difference. Can you talk about that a little bit? Because, I mean, the callousness, you know, you have, I mean, you have this, you know, you, you, obviously the Nazis are a murderous regime, but there's a category of people that they care about and want to protect. Uh, the Soviet Union was just completely callous to just anybody. And I don't know whether it was just, uh, uh, you know, uh, Stalin's personality or because there was an ideology who believed everything that was for the greater good. Uh, can you talk just about that distinction a little bit and how the two regimes were different? Well, yeah, I, admittedly, it is provocative because I suppose what we all just kind of tend to assume to be the nature of, of these two regimes where Nazi Germany is always in this category of evil, kind of, you know, unmatched by any other power. Um, you know, again, not to downplay the evil of this regime, um, but there were limits. I mean, to some extent, you might say Nazi Germany was an updated version of a lot of aggressive warmongering regimes throughout history, which have often been cruel towards conquered peoples. Um, and yes, some of obviously Germany's own subjects in the case of uh, Jewish population, um, gypsies, even some Slavs and so on, but mostly towards conquered peoples. I mean, after all, if you actually look at the, the numbers of, of Jews killed in the Holocaust, it mostly came from the occupied populations in places like uh, Poland and Ukraine and Belarus, the old pale of settlement where obviously a lot of Jews lived. I mean, it's just partly a matter of kind of the numbers. But that is to say, the, these were conquered peoples, peoples who, whose regimes that had once upon a time protected them no longer were able to protect them. And it's not to excuse it, it is to say that it is part of this kind of broader spectrum that to some extent is at least a little bit familiar to us from history. Um, what the Soviets actually did was in some ways more novel. Um, it, I'm not sure if I'd Say it was it was more cold-blooded, but regarding uh, the, the peoples, that is to say, the subject peoples of the Soviet Union itself, in some ways, it was. Uh, I mean, after all, most countries when they go to war, they they do sometimes commit war crimes. Um, one can talk about the U.S. and Britain with things like. Uh, aerial bombing, often not very accurate, places like Hamburg, Dresden, obviously Tokyo, later on with the, the atomic bomb, and people debate these things and they talk about them. But it's kind of generally understood that, let's say, the U.S. and Britain had to make this moral calculus, and they obviously care about their own citizens. Um, they care a little bit less about the citizens of the countries they're going to war with, even if once upon a time there were more qualms about uh, killing uh, civilians, at least until uh, the Second World War. In the case of Stalin, what's so strange is that a lot of the venom is actually directed at his own subjects who happen to have been un unlucky enough to be, to be captured, that is, prisoners of war. And again, a lot of this stuff, it's not like it's a secret. It's long been known 
that there was this tension over the repatriation of Soviet prisoners of war and uh, particularly 1945 discussion of it at Yalta, even before that, the Moscow conference. Uh, it's It's been known that Stalin, uh, it's even been known since the 90s that there were these explicit decrees regarding um, the anathematization of not just the soldiers captured by the enemy, but even their families who were supposed to be subjected to, to collective punishment, kind of collective guilt. Um, and yes, it is simply a fact. And again, most historians just either ignore it or they don't want to talk about it, but it is simply a fact that the Soviet Union did not ratify either the Hague or the Geneva Convention until 1989. Um, and in fact, this, this was brought up during the war. It was even brought up in some negotiations between the U.S., the U.S. State Department, and the Soviet Union. The U.S. State Department repeatedly requested that the Soviets basically not give uh, Nazi Germany any propaganda ammunition uh, by refusing to sign these conventions, by refusing to have any type of negotiations about the treatment of prisoners of war. I think part of the reason it's ignored is sort of the world's smallest violin. Nazi Germany obviously is committing all these crimes. And you look at, let's say, even the treatment of the Soviet prisoners of war, and, and the Nazis didn't distinguish themselves and humane treatment of these millions of Soviet prisoners of war taken. But I do try to point out in the book that at least part of the reason why so many of them were not well treated was that they were literally forsaken by the Soviet government, which refused to intervene on their behalf, um, refused quite literally and explicitly even to negotiate on their behalf. Uh, whereas, again, for all of their crimes against subject peoples, against unfavored racial minorities, Jews, Slavs, gypsies, etc. Uh, Nazi Germany and her allies did try to protect uh, their own warriors uh, to the extent that, that it was possible. Uh, and again, readers can make of that what they will. You know, this is not by any means to try to relativize or trivialize the crimes committed by Nazi Germany, but it is to explain that the two total the two regimes they, they functioned differently and they actually had different priorities. And and at least in some categories, the Soviets were even more callous. Yeah, I mean, uh, there's, uh, yeah, the, even when you study the domestic politics of the two regimes, I mean, you find the cases in Hitler's Germany where someone disagrees with Hitler and they just resign, right? And then they go home and they, <laughs> they live their lives. And if you know anything about the history of the Soviet Union under Stalin, that was that was sort of unthinkable. Um, so there was, you know, there was this, this sort of... The, more of this all-encompassing totalitarianism uh, in the Soviet regime. One thing I, you know, I wonder about is, you know, you can think, well, this is going to demotivate your soldiers if you're acting like this. If you're Stalin and you think, you know, they they just deserve to die if they get captured and you don't care what happens to them. But I guess there's two ways you could motivate soldiers, right? You can um, either, you know, treat them well and want to take care of them and and um, want to sort of get them to fight a little bit more voluntarily, or you could just have the whip hand and try to sort of force them to do what you say. And I, I was thinking about this when I was um, reading about the uh, the Winter War uh, between 19 uh, end of 1939, beginning of 1940, between the Soviet Union and Finland. So this is after uh, the Soviet Union and the uh, and Nazi Germany invade Poland, but bef but they're still allies. So before uh, before Operation Barbarossa, where Nazi Germany goes into the Soviet Union in 1941, and you know you, you just have these vivid scenes of what's going on in the war. Uh, and you, and you, I think you cited it was a British guy who went over there and the Finns captured some Soviet soldiers and they talked to them. And it's just really like a heart wrenching scene. Can you talk about, uh, the winter war and sort of the uh, Soviet soldiers, what they faced and about those, uh, interviews after they were captured? Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a fascinating period in part because, you know, as some, let's say 
a, a reviewers of the book might say, oh, I make too much of the Finnish war. It was just a sideshow after all. But of course, at the time, it wasn't a sideshow. It was the main story. You know, Poland was effectively finished. I mean, tragically, but that war was basically over. And Britain and France, of course, weren't doing anything in the West. That's why they called it the phony war, the droll de guerra. The Germans called it the sitzkrieg, the kind of sitting on your butt war. They weren't really doing anything. And so, in fact, the world's attention was focused on Finland. And that's part of the reason why people did start to pay attention to some of these horror stories coming out, not least about the way Soviet soldiers are being treated. Um, I know that they're being kind of you know prodded into battle by these merciless commissars with the machine guns. They created those detachments in January 1940, uh, these control detachments, as they were called, that they literally would just terrorize them into battle. I mean, I, I suppose you might say that on the not exactly positive side, but on the side of kind of carrot and stick, they did try to motivate the soldiers with agitprop. Uh, they had these people they called the, the politrooks or the political commissars. But the message that they were trying to instill in the soldiers didn't really seem to be taking, at least if, again, we, we believe these kind of debriefing interviews by the British officers who interviewed, Russian-speaking British officers who interviewed about 2,000 of them. Um, that is to say, being terrorized into compliance and being kind of subjected to this uh, atheistic communist agitprop every day uh, didn't really seem to motivate them. I mean, I suppose somewhat to his credit later on in the war, Stalin famously understands this and they do begin to revive a little bit more traditional Russian patriotic themes and there's a little bit of a kind of a concordat with the Russian Orthodox Church. But back in 3940, they hadn't done that yet. They were relying purely on atheistic communist ideology which really wasn't doing the trick as far as motivating the soldiers. And so then, yes, they had to bring in these kind of terror detachments behind them, which they then obviously trotted back out in July 1941, when once again, they, after the Germans invade and they have all these morale problems and they're hemorrhaging deserters by the hundreds of thousands and later by the millions. Um, now, later in the war, they do change the propaganda themes a little bit. But yeah, as far as that war in 3940, um, I think it was pretty clear that as far as motivating the soldiers to fight, and not least to fight in winter in Finland of all places, that uh, the action prop message wasn't really working. Um, in the end, I mean, they kind of bludgeoned Finland into a kind of submission, although accepting peace terms that you know were not not as onerous as as nearly everyone was expecting. Um, but the, the the Red Army certainly did not distinguish itself in battle, um, nor did it distinguish itself in the border battles in the early days against Nazi Germany. And it really wasn't until I think much later that you know morale recovered enough to the extent that they they could go beyond just terror and fear and actually try to motivate the soldiers to fight for something a bit more positive. And yes, obviously Nazi brutality eventually factored in, but th that, that was not the case in 3940 because the Finns actually, they treated the, the captured prisoners really well. I and mean, they kind of shocked them. There's that anecdote I have in the book about how they're, they're told that they're going to be tortured and shot if they're captured. And instead, you know, they're given blankets and food and, um, and it kind of disorients them rather massively about the nature of the propaganda they've been subject to. Yeah, and I think, I mean, I think another thing, I mean, it's hard to motivate Soviet soldiers. I mean, just the living standards that they were, you know, that they had. I think, yeah, they're shocked by how well the Finns treat them. Uh, when you're that amount of rushing poverty, especially if you're fighting in foreign countries and occupy, try to occupy foreign space, I mean, there must be, a, uh, you know, must be noticeable to anybody the sort of the disparity between what the Soviet propagandists are telling you and what you see uh, with your own eyes. So yeah, the, the part on the Winter War, I mean, I'm glad, I'm glad you spent time on that because that, that was really fascinating. And I think it, it also showed the con contingency of history. Looking back, it seemed like, oh, okay, it, everyone was, uh, you know, it was sort of destined that the British and the Americans and the, uh, and the French and the, and the Russian 
Russians would be on one side and Germany on the other. And what you really make clear during that period is there was really a possibility that Britain and France would go to war with the Soviet Union, right? So it could, the history is not as sort of clear cut as it looks in retrospect. Well, I think that's right. And, uh, you know, a lot of the reviewers of the book, once again, they've kind of, they say, I make too much of this. And in fact, you know, nothing like that was ever fated to happen. Um, well, some of it was just because of Stalin's own, both his kind of ruthlessness and the fact that he he was very clever. And, and he he obviously understood when kind of his back was up against the wall. And when he when he had a losing hand, uh, he picked up the wind of, of what was going on with the allies, that they were actually training troops and planning to land troops in northern Finland, that they were planning to have these kind of surveillance overflights of, of Baku and Batumi. He actually had a, a spy very high up in the French Middle Eastern Command in Damascus who was reporting to him about all of these plans almost verbatim. Um, you know, he even instigated queries at the U.S. Embassy in Moscow about what would happen if they actually did try to bomb some of the oil derricks along the Caspian. And it was a very pessimistic report because they were just, you know, they were close enough together that the bombs wouldn't even necessarily have to be that accurate to ignite a general conflagration. And this is the part of the, the Caspian coastline where the oil practically seeps up from the ground. It really wouldn't have been that hard to get a big fire going. Um, and, you know, Stalin was terrified of that. And of course, there was also the, the prospect that because at least about a third of the natural oil supplies available to Hitler and the German Reich, the, the Nazi Germany, were also coming from uh, uh, the Soviet Union, mostly from, from the Caspian, from, from Transcaucasia. And so uh, Stalin took it quite seriously. Um, and, and yes, the there were definitely signs that, I mean, Italy had withdrawn her ambassador from Moscow. I, I noticed actually one reviewer in the book uh, pointed out something like that, uh, oh, but this is a crazy fantasy that Italy and Spain would have intervened against the Soviet Union in 1940. And I said, is it really that crazy? They actually intervened against the Soviet Union in 1941 uh, when they right. joined Barbarossa. I mean, in the case of of Spain, kind of unofficially, but you know there were a lot of volunteers that Franco agreed to dispatch to join the force. Um, so it, you know it was not a, a completely crazy thing to think that, uh, and you know even German sympathies were on the side of the Finns. Hitler was was quite true to his pact with Stalin, and so he refused to help out Finland in any way. But German sympathies certainly lay with the Finns, and uh, I think you know this this is part of Stalin's kind of almost his ruthless genius as a statesman. Is is he realized the danger, and that's why he both. Um, uh, basically agreed to an early uh, an early armistice and then a peace treaty with Finland long before everyone thought that he would kind of give up on, on crushing Finland into submission. And then he ordered the Katyn Forest Massacre, this kind of preemptive massacre of, of Polish officers and elites in Soviet labor camps because he was afraid they would be a fifth column in case the Western powers went to war with him. So he kind of, he pulled the rug out from under them. And um, yeah, even the U.S., I mean, probably the U.S., have intervened directly. I don't think that was necessarily any time in serious prospect. Um, but as far as financial aid, I mean, Congress did appropriate money to help Finland. Uh, you know, Hoover had this Finnish Relief Committee, and they were raising money. Public opinion was staunchly on the side of the Finns. And you know, had, let's say, Britain and France you know, basically uh, abandoned their hypocrisy, because of course, they had declared war on only one of the countries invading Poland. And they said, well, well, look, you know, in the end, uh, Hitler and Stalin are sort of, you know, part and parcel. They're part of the same totalitarian alliance. And so uh, we need to find some way of, of defeating the both, not least because, of course, Soviet economic resources were critical for, for Hitler's war machine. Um, the U.S. probably wouldn't have joined the war, I don't think, in 1940. But it, it's not hard to see the U.S. supporting it with you know, some early version of Lend-Lease, um, in which case, yeah, I do think history might have turned out differently. But, but that said, I mean, this is the same story with, with Britain and her half-hearted intervention against Nazi Germany, where, where Hitler keeps pulling the rug out from under the British. They were just indecisive. And I suppose that was 
to some extent, the advantage the dictators had was they could be more impulsive and they could be decisive in making these moves without necessarily having to worry much about public opinion. Whereas uh, Britain and France, they kept dithering and delaying and talking. And while, while they talked, not only did Stalin pull the rug out from under them by ending the war in Finland, but of course, Hitler beat uh, Churchill to the punch uh, regarding uh, Norway, you know, by a matter of 24 hours. Um, so, you know, history might have turned out differently, um, but I think militating against that scenario was probably just the, the very indecisiveness and really ineffectual nature of um, yeah, the decisions being made by the Western allies. Okay, so, yeah, so when, uh, speaking of alternative history, so when Molotov uh, visits uh, Berlin, um, and the, the, he goes back, and then the uh, and then Stalin makes all these demands about entering the tripartite pact, which Hitler actually wants. Uh, then Hitler gets insulted, and then sort of uh, from there uh, makes up his mind to uh, to invade the Soviet Union. Do you think at that time that uh, do you think do you think that there was ever a possibility that Stalin would actually join the tripartite pact? Was he actually negotiating? Was he trying to reject Hitler by insulting him with all these demands? What do you think Stalin was thinking at that time? Could he have joined actually the Axis powers and and change the whole history of the conflict? Well, I think he certainly could have. I mean, to some extent, it might have been against his nature, both in terms of his stubbornness and his pride, and obviously also his ambition uh, to accept some type of a almost like a junior partner role vis-a-vis Nazi Germany and the Tripartite Pact more broadly. Um, but I think it was pretty clear, at least if you're talking about the other side, the German side, and even by, by extension, by proxy, uh, both Japan and Italy, um, that they really did see the Anglo-Saxon powers, as they called them, that is the U.S. and Britain, as their adversary, and they saw Stalin as a potential ally against that adversary. It's one of the reasons why they, they of course, renamed the Anti-Comintern Pact, which had been explicitly anti-Soviet, and they renamed it the Tripartite Pact uh, to make it clear that there was kind of the standing invitation for the Soviets to join it if they wanted to. Now, as far as what Stalin was up to, uh, which is, uh, you, you, you've touched on a really good question here, because you know, it's clear what he does, which is to kind of reject the possibly cynical German suggestions that he focuses attention more in the South, both on kind of Turkey and on the Middle East and maybe in Afghanistan, while not pushing as hard in the Balkans and vis-a-vis be Finland. Um, I mean, it's clear what Stalin does, which is, it is almost like an ultimatum. He demands that Germany withdraw her troops and personnel from Finland, from Romania, where Germany had even greater interest in petroleum than in the Soviet Union. Almost half of the natural oil available to German Reich was coming from Romania, and you know Stalin's pressing on this quite quite uh, firmly. Um, and then vis-a-vis Bulgaria and Turkey, the Straits question, where Stalin actually basically demands the right to send troops to occupy Bulgaria and and even Turkey, the Turkish Straits, the Bosporus, uh, going down uh, through the Sea of Marmara and the Dardanelles into the Mediterranean. And he had legitimate security concerns about the Straits, something all Russian statesmen have have shared, particularly the threat of perhaps the Royal Navy coming up through the Straits and threatening the Black Sea coastline. Um, he had legitimate security concerns. Um, but the fact that he must have known that, let's say, Finland and Romania in particular were of such vital economic interest to Hitler and the Reich, I think part of it is he knew how vulnerable Hitler was, that despite what appeared in the West to be this kind of unstoppable uh, German war machine that had knocked out France and the Low Countries, Denmark and Norway, and was kind of lining up allies in the southeast towards the Balkan, and you know everyone's paying homage to 
Hitler as the great conqueror. In fact, Hitler was still deeply vulnerable because of the British blockade, which meant that he relied on the Soviet Union for vast quantities of resources, not just the Soviets, if you're talking about manganese and oil and, and cotton and grain and even rubber coming from Asia. But in the case of Romania and the Balkans, there were all kinds of other materials, the oil from Romania, but also non-ferrous metals, in particular chrome or chromium. Where German supplies were almost entirely dependent on the flow from both Turkey and the Balkans. And you know, Stalin really is kind of threatening this, this choke point. As far as what he wanted, did he think Hitler would agree to this? That's a great question. You know, did St I do think Stalin was expecting that a break with Nazi Germany would occur at some point. I don't think he wanted to bring it about that winter necessarily. That is, I don't think this was a kind of a deliberate, um, you know, a bluff that he knew the Germans would call you know, which would lead to war, and that this is precisely the scenario Stalin wanted. I think he was seeing what he could get away with. I think he overestimated to some extent his own leverage and underestimated Hitler's own stubbornness. I think to me the real what if is had Stalin himself gone to Berlin? I actually think had the two dictators at the top level spoken to one another, they might have actually found some type of modus of Vivendi. I, I think that in part just because of the personalities that, you know, stubborn and egotistical as both of them were, I think they had a mutual grudging respect. Whereas Molotov was just kind of a cold fish. He was unpleasant and demanding, but in the, in the, in the least imaginative way. And, and Hitler obviously just had a, a horrible impression left by Molotov, even if it was really, he was carrying out Stalin's instructions, of course. But I honestly think had, had, a, had a real summit occurred between the two statesmen, they might have actually come to terms um, in November. 1940. Uh, but Molotov, that was a different story. But Molotov, some pleasant personality caused Operation Barbarossa. <laughs> so taken away to some that. extent, yes, to some extent. Part of the background, yes. <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah, you talk about Stalin going to Berlin makes me think about the later uh, meetings between FDR and Churchill and Stalin and how Stalin was just, you know, FDR is basically dying. And Stalin tells him, you know, I, I can't leave Russia, you know, just come, come, as, come as close to me as you can. And so imagining uh, Stalin taking the step of going to Berlin is pretty hard considering, you know, how much he made FDR and Churchill sort of work for those uh, for those meetings and how much he made them travel. Yeah, I think those uh, Hitler and Stalin probably too stubborn for either one to, to give way on that. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's uh, yeah, fascinating, fa fascinating counterfactual. Um, so, yeah. So anyways, I mean, Hitler does uh, invade the Soviet Union. Um, and I think, you know, we talked about, um, you know, myths of World War II. And I think one of them is there was this clear moral superiority. On, on the Soviet side and say, at least at the start of the war. I think another myth that people take away is that, um, that so a lot of, uh, lot of uh, Eastern Europe, I mean, ended up being co uh, communized. Uh, same with China, it, it, felt, it felt to the communists, um, North Korea, obviously. So, you know, communism spread as a result of World War II. And I think that, you know, uh, the standard sort of uh, regular explanation of this is that, well, uh, Stalin had the boots on the ground um, and there really wasn't, you know, FDR gave away Poland. There was really nothing he could do about Poland or Eastern Europe uh, near the end of the war. Uh, and you take you take issue with that. Can you talk about why that that's not necessarily true? Well, yeah, I'll start with Europe first. Uh, I think the case is even easier to make in Asia. In Europe, it's a little bit trickier to make, in part because, of course, it depends on exactly when you're talking about. Um, but when it comes to the Tehran conference, and this is something that, you know, obviously a lot of kind of reviewers have taken notice of, and some of them even pointed out, well, look, I mean, yes, as you point out, you know, Stalin 
would have gotten all these things eventually anyway. But at the time of Tehran, at the end of November 1943, the Soviets were still a thousand kilometers and more, I guess the, our equivalent in, in American miles would be roughly kind of 620 miles and more from, uh, from the old Soviet Reich borders. That is to say, they were still nowhere near year reconquering any of those territories, um, nowhere near Poland. Um, they didn't even take Odessa until uh, roughly, I think, five, five and a half months after Tehran, um, so that they really were not in, in any immediate prospect of being able to retake these territories. And that's one of the reasons why I pay such attention to what, what used to be called the Mediterranean stratagem, of usually ascribed to Churchill. It's, I think it's actually a little bit of a misnomer. It was much more of an Adriatic Balkan stratagem. Which is to say, the normal argument against this that you hear is, oh, well, this was a crazy idea because you have the Alps and they're virtually impenetrable. Um, well, the thing is, the Allies had half a million troops in Italy. They had 68 landing craft in Italy, in the Mediterranean, that is to say. And not, it wasn't just Churchill, but you know, a lot of the chiefs of staff, which had been discussing this before Tehran, they were all talking about, you know, even if they did carry out a French landing, a, a kind of channel coast landing on on. Um, whether Normandy or somewhere else on the French coast, you know, whether in conjunction with or prior to, they said, well, look, you know, the weather in the Mediterranean, you know, obviously is uh, it's warmer and, it, you know, you don't have to wait as long as you do in the channel. And so you could try to do something there first. And among other things, German defenses, of course, in the Balkans and in Southeastern Europe were, were actually much thinner on the ground. They did have troops in Yugoslavia, as we know, uh, they did have troops in Greece, of course, but generally speaking, um, you know, these were not first line troops. And in fact, it, we can, you can see this on the German side. I don't go into this that much in the book because it's mostly about Stalin, but if you look at all these kind of, uh, you know, the memoirs of various figures high up in German intelligence, they were actually expecting the Allies to do this. Germans kept expecting the Allies to do things that made sense, right? <laughs> so you land troops at Trieste or some other point in the Adriatic, you know, you push up through the Balkans, and basically you you liberate uh, the Balkans and a lot of Central Europe before the Red Army even gets there. Um, now, there is a kind of a counter counterfactual one, one could posit here. And I think one of the clever reviewers did point out that the Allies had to be very delicate about this, because had they done this in express contravention of Stalin's stated desires and wishes, Stalin could have turned around and negotiated some type of separate peace deal uh, with Hitler. And that was certainly a risk. I think that was a risk all along. Um, but when you look at the broader question of Allied policy in Europe, and I'll move on to Asia in a moment, you know, the, the Lenly story, which I talk a lot about in the book, um, you know, is that you know, even there, you could make the argument that when the Soviets were in legitimate danger, when the Germans on the gates of Moscow in 1941, it made it made a strategic sense to keep the Soviets in the war. And that was the original justification for lend -Lease. If there was a, a serious threat to U.S. national security, the idea being, OK, if the Soviet Union is conquered and Germany has all of her resources at her disposal, that's a threat. OK, fine. But then you move forward you know, up to kind of Stalingrad and then Kursk by late 42 and then early 43. The Soviets are in no danger of collapse especially after Kursk, but even arguably after Stalingrad, you know, they begin this long, brutal, but very slow march to Berlin, you know, which takes them the, the better part of two and a half years. Um, and, and there would have been a good argument for slowing down Lend-Lease aid, perhaps for devoting more U.S. resources to the war against Japan, or even to landing craft and, and the war against Hitler in Europe. Instead, the opposite happens. You know, it, it gets ramped up to even more gargantuan levels in 1943, 44, 1945, you know, which makes very little sense on any level. You know, effectively, what, what the NATO alliance is, is later designed to forestall or prevent, that is, the Soviet incursion into Europe, 
is precisely what U.S. policy doesn't just allow, but literally encourages and fuels, uh, not just in terms of the, the actual petroleum, but in terms of uh, uh, motorized vehicles. Uh, Lend-lease, uh, uh, Jeeps, Studebakers, even Harley-Davidson motorcycles, tanks, warplanes, inputs for Soviet industry, uh, non-ferrous metals, refined steel products, everything you can name, aluminum in particular, that, that actually the Soviets using even to build their own tanks and warplanes. All of that is given to the Soviets effectively free of charge, you know, even as the U.S. is, is sort of like forcing the British Empire into receivership with these uh, rather onerous Lend-lease terms. Um, you know, none of that had to be done, at least to the extent that it was done. Um, so there wasn't just the choice at Tehran made to focus on northern France to the exclusion of, of the Mediterranean strategy, but it was also the decision even before that, and then you know, for the 18 months after that, to ramp up this Lend-Lease aid to gargantuan levels. Now, that argument applies uh, to an even more extreme degree in Asia, where FDR promises Stalin his sphere of influence in northern Asia, including Manchuria. Uh, he, he didn't promise Korea yet at Tehran. That comes at, at Yalta. Um, but along with, with Sokol and the Kuril Islands. All of this is promised to Stalin at a time when he's not just not, not in the war against Japan, he's, he's actively, to some extent, helping uh, the Japanese. He's arresting U.S. pilots who happen to crash land on Soviet soil after bombing raids on Japan. He's effectively functioning as a kind of friendly, friendly quasi-ally to Japan at the time that Roosevelt is offering Stalin. And he offers him Manchuria, which is absurd on so many levels. I mean, it was the Japanese incursion there against which, which all U.S. policy had been based since 1931. He offers it to Stalin at a time when the Soviet Union is neutral vis-a-vis -vis Japan and even helping Japan. And then the final uh, Soviet invasion, where Stalin does kind of carve out this empire, and this allows him to link up with Mao and begin arming Mao's armies in the Chinese Civil War, that invasion is nearly entirely financed, fueled, and supplied and provisioned by U.S. Lend-Lease aid shipped to Vladivostok in the form of 8.25-odd million tons of war material, million tons of fuel, free of charge. So that effectively, the, the communist sort of conquest of Asia, it's not just as kind of allowed to happen by the U.S. The U.S. literally finances and fuels and provisions it, uh, you know, which in retrospect just seems to me astonishing. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's worth uh, uh, sort of fleshing out the importance of the Mediterranean strategy. So uh, the idea was Stalin wanted uh, wanted the invasion of the Allies. So the so in the East, I mean, the, basically Stalin and Hitler are fighting in Eastern Europe, and the uh, France has fallen. And the question is, what are the uh, U.S. and U.K. going to do? Where are they going to uh, come fight the Germans? And Stalin wants them to come uh, through France, right? He wants them to go across the uh, English Channel. And the argument is, if they didn't do what Stalin wanted, if they had gone through the Mediterranean route. They could have at least had troops on the ground. They could have preserved some influence, at least in the Balkans, maybe in Eastern Europe. Is that the basic idea? Yeah, I think that is the basic idea. And obviously, there's a risk there. I mean, the risk of potentially alienating Stalin. I mean, he made his views brutally clear at Tehran. There was no subtlety whatsoever. Um, you know, it was almost stated in the form of a threat. You know, he was going to leave the conference and kind of break the whole thing up. And at times, he would even threaten that, you know, the Soviets might... Um, uh, negotiate some type of a separate peace behind the Allies' back. He actually did again imply that he wouldn't he wouldn't state it explicitly, but he, he implied that on numerous occasions, including at least once at Tehran. So there's a risk, but yes, I think the payoff would have been enormous for the interests of of the U.S. and Britain in, in southeastern Europe and and in the Balkans. Not least because 
um, you know, we're still at a point in the war. Um, there are obviously the kind of the plots against Hitler, um, you know, among some of these Prussian Junkers, uh, a lot of the a lot of the generals, some of them actually very high up in the German command structure. Uh, you know, politics inside of the Reich, in part because of, of Hitler's somewhat lackadaisical approach to even <laughs> surveilling his enemies and the plotters against him. There are all kinds of different scenarios that might have played out in 1943 with a different Allied uh, strategy there. And now Stalin had a good argument. I mean, he's saying look, we're the ones who were doing the, the most damage against the Wehrmacht, we're the ones bleeding and dying, even if, of course, a lot of the bleeding and dying was happening because of his own policies. But that was true. So that argument that the, the U.S. and Britain needed to divert German strength, the problem with that argument is they had already diverted German strength by invading Sicily and, and the Italian mainland. Of course, they'd also been fighting in North Africa, where there were a lot of German troops on the ground. And in fact, Stalin had effectively been, his generals had been bailed out at Kursk in July when the Allies did land at Sicily and then move on to the Italian mainland when Hitler had actually pulled a lot of first line divisions, including armor divisions, off of the Eastern Front. Um, now, they would have had to be firm. I mean, basically, Churchill and Roosevelt would have had to take a firm united stance. That's precisely what didn't happen at Tehran because Roosevelt made the very determined, really premeditated decision to cozy up to Stalin. I mean, he's quite explicit about this, that, you know, this was his goal at Tehran, was getting to know Stalin, and he had already gotten to know Churchill, and, and you know, he insists on meeting Stalin privately on numerous occasions. He rebuffs Churchill's kind of advances. He makes it quite clear, both on the question of overlord D-Day versus the, the potential Adriatic stratagem, um, and on even questions regarding kind of the treatment of Germany after the war, that he's lining up alongside Stalin. He's not lining up alongside Churchill. And and some of this, I think, is because of Roosevelt's own kind of foreign policy worldview. He, despite certain Anglophile sympathies, he didn't really approve of the British Empire. And to some extent, I think he, uh, for whatever reason, saw Stalin as a fellow anti-imperialist. I think that's that's genuinely the way he actually viewed Stalin. Um, and you can actually see it kind of in the transcripts, even when he he unilaterally proposes to Stalin in a private meeting apropos of nothing that uh, that that. Uh, that the British Raj should sort of be overthrown and, and you know, <laughs> India should should have a social revolution from the bottom up. And even Stalin cautions him that maybe that's going a bit too far. Um, you know, so, you know, what was their possibility there? Yes. And I, I absolutely think that logistically, too, there are risks in any operation. But if you're talking about risk, this is the other thing people have said, like, oh, but it's, it's crazy to think about a risky operation. Like a risky operation, you mean like crossing the English Channel into the teeth of, you know, the German defenses, which they've spent several years erecting along the French Channel coastline, um, or as far as even the distances. I mean, Stalin's only real objection is he says, well, the, the Balkans are far from Germany. And I was really curious about this when, when I was reading this transcript. I just went and I looked and said, no, 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 actually Trieste is about 400 kilometers from Munich. Normandy is 700 kilometers from the Rhine. It's, I'm yeah. sorry, it's just not true. You know, and people just accept these things on faith without actually investigating them. And so that, that's one of the things that I really wanted to do you know, when I was writing the book. Yeah. And, it, and it's a little bit, I mean, it's a little bit worse than that in, in some cases because the, uh, the, the Western allies are, are facilitating communist takeover in countries. You have a, uh, you have a chapter on Yugoslavia. Uh, can you talk about that and how the British just undercut, uh, the guy who's represent the Mikhailovich who is fighting for, uh, the government that the British recognize, right? Uh, and then just completely throwing their lot in with Tito and just facil helping facilitate the communist takeover. Yeah, I'm still kind of puzzling my head to make uh, to make sense of this. Um, you know, I have read, I've, I've I've been hearing from some people you know who have read the book, and I suppose the last fallback argument that Churchill's 
you know, admirers, defenders are going to make about Yugoslavia is that um, there were some enigma intercepts suggesting uh, there was something to these rumors, for example, that Mihailovic was, you know, dealing with uh, the occupiers, usually the Italians, not some the Germans. Um, um, and there's there's some truth to this. We do know that on occasion there were prisoner exchanges. We do know that Mihailovich, who is, yes, representing the Chetniks, but also the, the royal Yugoslav government in exile, um, that he was uh, at times bartering for weapons with the Italians. Um, but of course, Tito and the partisans were doing the exact same thing. I mean, this is just, this is how things worked in Yugoslavia, in the Balkans during the war, but especially in Yugoslavia, where we have all these different groups and, you know, the Croats and the Serbs and, you know, the Bosniaks and the Muslim populations and the Italians, and they don't see eye to eye with Germans. So a lot of what the Italians were up to was trying to sell arms to the Chetniks so that they would use them against the Germans, because in fact, the Italians and the Germans don't get along. It's a very complicated story. And so you could at least play devil's advocate and say, well, look, the British got some slightly misleading and slanted intelligence, and Churchill used this in order to make this you know, decision that um, he thought uh, they should, let's say, give some support to the partisans. But of course, it wasn't some support. They literally abandoned Mihailovich and threw all of their support to the partisans. Uh, they end up sending him and, you know, more than 100 times more war material than they'd ever shared with Mihailovich. Uh, some of that was because the accident of timing, that they made the shift after they had the airbase in Bari in Italy, where they could actually finally get massive amounts of supplies in. But, you know, by, by 1944, um, they're literally forbidding any British officers from serving with Mihailovich. So it's, it's not just a kind of a, uh, we're going to play both sides equally. It's an utter abandonment of, of the side of the government, as you point out, they're actually hosting in London. Um, now, a lot of this... I do think was because of kind of these communist influence operations. You can see it both in Cairo where they have these people almost like manipulating things in the map room to make it look like the partisans are doing things the Chetniks had actually done. Uh, you see it in the BBC in the broadcast that are being deemed in Yugoslavia. Uh, you see it in the correspondence. Um, and the one thing that I'm, I'm a little bit annoyed with so far, but it, I, I get it in part because everyone wants to defend Churchill. I mean, it's just the, it's like one of the last things people can still believe in, I suppose, in the U.S. and Britain is the, the cult, even if, you know, he gets attacked by the woke and so on. I'm talking about kind of your more mainstream types, you know, who say, well, oh, well, you know, at least we have Churchill. I get why everyone wants to defend Churchill. Um, but I do wish people had noticed that the Soviet sources we now have show that the whole story was an utter sham. This whole idea that Tito was this kind of, you know, principled Trojan horse. He, he was an independent thinker. That's what the uh, Fitzroy McLean wrote his bestseller. Eastern approaches. He was kind of Churchill's man with Tito. And, you know, he, he was still defending this to the end of his life. He was dining out on this in these kind of dinner dinner party circuit stories he was still telling in the 1980s about how he and Churchill had made this kind of very hard-headed rail politic decision that, you know, that Tito was tougher and that he was an independent man. And that's why we should back him. But, you know, he was a perfectly loyal Stalinist, at least during the war. I mean, once he was in power, maybe things were a little more complicated. But at the time, he was reporting regularly to Stalin, taking direct instructions from Stalin on, on even the most minor points of substance. He was spying on the British officers and reporting on their activities to Stalin. You know, so the whole story was just this kind of wishful thinking lie. Um, and again, I, I, it might be a little bit like with, with Roosevelt and his noblesse oblige. Something must have just appealed to Churchill, the idea that he was kind of almost going against type, that he was supposedly a, a principled anti-communist, but there was something big of him in 
supporting Tito, or maybe it was romantic, you know, the kind of the romantic guerrilla thing. Uh, but again, it was in, in direct betrayal of the actual government that he was hosting in London, you know, which I think in retrospect is just, you know, if you talk to, to Serbs today, I mean, they're, they're still bewildered by it. They just don't understand. Well, it brings me back to when we talked about FDR, um, you know, maybe being just naturally sympathetic to uh, to communism more than Nazism and having uh, so the agents of influence therefore had an effect in the American government. When this when I read about this in Yugoslavia, I thought this makes the case that the agents of influence are a lot more important than people think. So you say, well, you know, uh, maybe he just wanted to go against type. It seems like, you know, so it's like what we said about FDR was like he was sympathetic towards communism. So, you know, he, he wanted to believe this stuff, but Churchill wanted to go in the opposite direction. Isn't it just simpler to believe that they were just manipulated by these Soviet spies within the British military and, and the BBC? And, you know, just my own study of history, politicians get a lot more information than you think from the media. Uh, you know, a lot of people think they're just relying on their own uh, uh, their own intelligence sources, but the media plays an outsized role. So isn't it, could it just be as simple as there were all these communist spies and Churchill was fooled by them? Well, I suppose maybe I was... Um defending Churchill or protesting a bit too much. I mean, after all, you know, there are a lot of kind of Churchill fans around the world, and I, I, I don't want them all to turn yeah. against me entirely. But but that's a no, you're, you're making an important point. I do think some of it was this kind of strange, almost psychological, again, either the noblesse oblige or the working against type in Churchill's case. But I do think you're right. I do think the media matters. I think the BBC matters. In the case of the US, I think this is particularly at work vis-a-vis Chiang Kai-shek in China. That is that, um, again, it might have started off as a communist talking point, endlessly repeated. And I, and I, I talked about this even, I had this, this kind of odd anecdote uh, my, my freshman year at Stanford when I was, I was repeating what I didn't realize at the time was just kind of this old trope of yeah. uh, US wartime propaganda about the, you know, the infinitely corrupt Chiang Kai-shek and you know, kind of, I don't know, his wife and her shoe collection. Um, you know, all this stuff that had just kind of become, again, by endless repetition, and had just been kind of battered into our psyches that uh, that this regime was so corrupt that they needed to be uh, cut off. Um, and of course, this was a communist talking point. And, you know, it was spread particularly in the Treasury Department where they actually had influence over policy and they were able to kind of cut off off the money pipeline to Chiang. And, and then, you know, after the war, when, when Marshall goes there, they literally cut them off entirely. I mean, it's, it's just astonishing. I mean, it's a little bit like what Churchill does with, with Mihailovich in Yugoslavia. The U.S. takes its own client and, you know, first sort of slow walks and then curtails and then cuts him off entirely. Um, now, again, some of this maybe was in, in the case of, let's say, Stillwell. I mean, there was some racial prejudice involved vis-a-vis Chiang Kai-shek and probably his wife, too, and they just didn't like them for various reasons. Um, um, in the case of Mihailovich in Yugoslavia, I think some of what Churchill was hearing was he was tough to deal with. Um, you know, there were these British, I, I had to cut some of this from the book from length, but you know, there were these dinner parties where he would, it was a little bit like a chicken or the egg thing. He would rail against the British for not trusting him and for being naive about Tito and the communists. And then word would get back to, you know, Churchill that he had been complaining and bad mouthing British officers, which is kind of true. You know, there was a little bit of a, of a self-reinforcing echo chamber. But I do think the agents of influence were significant because it's kind of they got the ball rolling. You know, they, they would put the talking points out there. They knew how to craft the message and they would be just ruthless in repeating it, you know, so that all anyone would hear coming out of the Treasury Department in Washington was how corrupt Chiang Kai-shek was. You 
know, said that by 1946, it seemed perfectly natural uh, to Marshall, you know, who's just more or less a kind of creature of the establishment. Oh, well, you know, obviously we've got to cut him off. And they even used some of the same arguments, you know, which was that he's sectarian and he won't work with Mao. They would say the same thing about Mihailovich. He won't work with Tito or the partisans. And so they, they would even use some of the same, sometimes it was corruption, sometimes it was they were sectarian, you know, depending on presumably who the audience was, they knew which point to emphasize. But I think you're absolutely right that the climate of opinion in the media, it does it does affect these things. And, and you know, clearly, I mean, you look at, let's say, even in, in Washington, in the case of the Drew Pearson, the, the so-called Washington merry-go-round column. And, you know, the thing about these columns, particularly when it's, you know, written by some kind of comparative old folk is that they often have assistants on their staff who actually do a lot of the, you know, the research and, and probably the, the writing of the initial draft. And, and we now know that some of his staffers were communists, um, you know, and or agents of influence. And so, you know, one of the most influential Washington columns, to some extent, was kind of a conduit for Soviet propaganda. Um, now, I do think it mattered that, let's say, the message had to fit in with whatever maybe the statesmen were already inclined to do with or, you know, would be shaped in a way to kind of flatter their prejudice in their worldviews, but I think you're absolutely right that the climate of opinion and, and the media propaganda uh, definitely mattered a great deal. Um, I mean, I, I don't even really talk about it in the book, but Hollywood's another fascinating subject, and there, there are whole books written about the ways in which, you know, wartime movies, uh, not just regarding kind of communist influence and almost like the, you know, the, the sense of, let's say, kind of uh, the ideals of communism, but specifically like which countries would be favored or which would be, uh, which would be smeared. Um, I mean, Casablanca is a great example of that. If you, if you actually look into this and you look at the way the polls are portrayed in nearly every movie coming out of Hollywood during the war uh, versus the way, you know, these other countries are portrayed. I mean, it's amazing. Like Norway turns out, out to be the hero of, of the resistance in Casablanca. <laughs> the Czechs and the Norwegians are the heroes of the resistance. And the Poles are these these sort of you know slimy nincompoops. Um, and you know, tell me there isn't some type of of Soviet agitprop influence at work there. I mean, it really is astonishing how effective and even how subtle it could be at times. Yeah, you bring up you bring up uh, Chiang Kai Shek and uh, the Chinese. I mean, I was I was struck by um, how uh, the Americans lost confidence in him. So at one point, they uh, uh, Harry Dexter White, a Soviet agent of influence, meet the guy meets this guy named Salman Adler in in Cairo, right? And then White, tell me if I'm getting this wrong. White goes back to D.C. Adler goes to China, and they both submit identical reports about how Chiang is uh, Chiang is corrupt, right? Is, is that is that is that what happened? Yeah, I mean that that that's pretty much the case. I, I assume they were already you know working on some version of this before they met with each other. But I do think they absolutely were trying to kind of craft you know these these sort of like perfectly ma- matching messages. And pretty soon, yeah, it got up to Morgenthau, and they they cut him off. And it and the, I mean he was also cut off logistically. This was a little bit more complicated. This had to do in part with Roosevelt and Churchill and discussions of landing craft and this kind of zero sum game. But you know they also called off Operation Buccaneer in the Bay of Bengal, which was designed to eventually push in and open up the Burma Road to supply China. You know so the the upshot of both of these things, the decision at Tehran and then Cairo not to carry out this operation to support Chiang Kai Shek, and the kind of the crafting of this message about corruption, the cutting off of of this the shipment of gold, which had actually been promised to him. And I mean, he even kind of said, okay, well, I get you can't do the operation, at least give me the gold. And the end, he gets neither. You know, the end, the, the Lend-Lease aid shipments to China declined to about 0.4 of 1% of the global total in 1943 and 1944. You know, even as the Soviets are, it's just ramping up into the stratosphere, what the Soviets are getting. Um, and again, it's, it's not just about 
you know, let's say the way in which Shankashek is being perceived in Washington. It's just about these broader Soviet priorities. And I mean, the, th- the thing about this is people act like this is kind of the shocking or provocative thing to say. You actually go back to 1919 and the founding documents of the Communist International and then the Second Congress in 1920. It's all right there in the 21 points. You know, that basically foreign communist parties around the world uh, are expected to devote basically nearly the entire of their operations to uh, carrying out, you know, the foreign policy interests of the Soviet Union. It's not a mystery. It's actually, it's like a, a documented priority of foreign communist parties. And of course, the agents of influence, this is what they're supposed to do. And so this is how you end up with Chiang Kai-shek being cut off, uh, the Soviets, you know, the aid ramping up uh, to massive levels there. Or to give you another example, the secret deal brokered between Mao and, and Japan, brokered by Stalin and Molotov, where Japan simply promised not to attack Mao's forces, that Japan would only attack the forces of Chiang Kai-shek. And in, in return, of course, Mao promised not to attack Japanese forces. And the thing is, people will still deny this sort of thing, but we actually have the documents now that pretty much prove that these agreements were in place. Um, so yeah, in the case of the, the corruption argument about Chiang Kai-shek, again, it's not that probably with some grain of truth to it. I'm sure a lot of the you know the aid monies went missing and the regime was not a, a, a paragon of, of transparent governance. I'm sure that's true. But the fact that these messages were kind of identical and they were all promoted in terms of these talking points that were endlessly repeated until they became kind of Washington conventional wisdom, um, I think that was quite uh, deliberately brought about, again, by these agents of influence and in some cases by Communist Party members. Members again, just yeah. carrying out their their duty. It's it's what they're supposed to do. Yeah, and I mean, you think about a leader. You have these reports that look identical from thousand thousands of miles apart, and you say, "Wow, you know, this this must be true." You don't think that there are you know Soviet agents of influence planning what they're going to say beforehand, but you can see how that you know. Well, I mean, what do what do FDR and Churchill know about China or Yugoslavia? <laughs> not you know, probably not. You know, they're not independent experts in the you know the field, or they're not investigating themselves. So you can imagine this would just absolutely have a, a massive influence. Um, right. And so, so the, you know, so, the, yeah, since we're going through, you know, every, every myth of the, of the great war uh, that, that you sort of take apart in the book, you know, I think I, I was struck by sort of the personal profiles of uh, FDR and, uh, and Churchill. And I'm just, the Roosevelt, I mean, the way he goes about these things, I, I found shocking. I mean, Churchill, I, I felt a little bad for at some point. I mean, he was sort of ganged up on by FDR. He did seem to ha- like, you know, have some moral guilt about what was happening um, in Eastern Europe. Um, Thanks to you know their policy decisions, but FDR just seems so callous. So at one point, you know, he tells uh, you say he tells Stalin he'd go along with Soviet plans to annex Eastern Poland as long as he understood there are six or seven millions Americans of Polish extraction, and he didn't want to lose their votes. Um, and then he tells Stalin at some point, um, you know, he was he, he didn't care basically what they did in the Baltics, but he wanted he needed to appease voters of Lithuanian, Latvian, and Estonian origin. I'm thinking, you know, even if you think like this, I would be ashamed to say. It, right? <laughs> and so the fact that he's just such a politician and so callous and sort of uninterested in the great questions and, and to, to just, you know, put it out there that he, all he's concerned about is, uh, you know, his popularity at home. Did you have the same reaction uh, as me while, while researching and looking into this? It is at times shocking. And I mean, okay, to, to, come, to come back to Churchill, your first one, I do think, I mean, there, there's a tragic sense to Churchill. 
conceptual. I mean, it's not just that he sees the consequences in Eastern Europe, but I think eventually he sees the consequences also for the British Empire, which is to say, yes, he has made this moral stand, perhaps it's a bit selective vis-a-vis -vis Stalin, but he's decided, look, you know, our, our, our honor must not be stained by negotiating some deal with Hitler. You know, we will fight this out to the end. And in the end, the price is the, the waning of British power and influence and, and ultimately the kind of the collapse of the British Empire, which is what presumably he, he believed in as much, if not more, than anyone anyone else. The British Empire and its values in the end are replaced both by the US, which is probably a kind of a, a less competent and cruder version of the same and obviously much less effective and and by the, the brutality, of course, of, of this new Soviet empire. That, and yeah, he, yeah there, there is a sense of tragedy that he kind of, he sees this happening and unfolding, and particularly at Tehran, when he realizes that Roosevelt has, has effectively abandoned him and almost sided with with Stalin. There's, there's kind of a sense of shock there, I think. Um, Vis-a-vis -vis Roosevelt, yeah, it's it's strange. I mean, the, the thing about this is, I mean, from, from one perspective, you could say, well, look, um, maybe I'm I'm claiming he was he was too naive in the way he dealt with the Soviet Union. But I'm not sure it's naivete because he was capable of driving a very hard bargain. I mean, you, the quotes you're pointing out are kind of quite cynical, but of course, vis-a-vis Great Britain, he drove an extremely hard bargain on the terms for the basis for destroyer deal. At one point, he actually more or less invited uh, uh, Churchill. This is back during the, the Battle of France and the Low Countries when it looked like Britain might have been in danger. And he invited Britain to kind of send her fleet over to U.S. ports and maybe we'll take it over for you. You know, that is, he's, he's perfectly willing to play hardball with the British Empire and almost kick it to the curb, uh, both in negotiating the terms, the basis for destroyers lend lease, and, you know, really kind of a, almost promising promising to sell out uh, uh, the, the Raj, sell out British India, Tehran, and, and, and also just after the war and insisting on full repayment. I mean, Britain was still paying off these loans up until 2006. So he was perfectly capable of playing hardball, which makes it so much stranger, again, that he takes such a a kind of a pro-Soviet line and almost in this cynical way. I mean, there, there must have been some part of this kind of cynical old world bartering which appealed to him at the same time that he was making this pose about you know the atlantic charter and and, and the principles uh, the four freedoms and all the rest of it you know he obviously had a cynical side a kind of rail politics side to him um it was just selectively applied um and i suppose like the ultimate devil's advocate argument you, you could make on his behalf is that while he did agree to effectively whether you want to call it selling out eastern europe or kind of looking the other way or giving Stalin permission and not contesting Eastern Europe, um, he did more or less take over the British Empire or at least begin the process by which the U.S. took over the British Empire. And so you could make a very cynical kind of realpolitik argument that he thought, well, look, you know, Stalin's a much, uh, a much tougher individual and, and his empire is more important and ultimately will be more powerful than Britain. And so I'm going to side with Stalin and I'm going to kick Britain to the curb. Um, I mean, maybe that's what's really going on. Um, but again, some of it remains mysterious to me. I can't say I have a kind of a psychological explanation for Roosevelt and his behavior. Yeah. And I mean, at the end, because you have a, you have like a, you know, so FDR dies. So you do have a sort of a, a, an alternative case. Uh, you do have an alternative understanding of how things could have been different because Truman comes into office, right? And he at least draws some lines in the sands. And I got the impression from reading the, you know, the last chapter or so of the book that if FDR had lived, Stalin would have just basically kept going forever and Roosevelt would have been like, great. And then Truman comes along and at least, you know, at least draws a line in the sand and, and uh, you know, uh, sends the message that there are some limits. Uh, can you talk about that sort of that counterfactual? What if, what if FDR had lived longer? 
Sure. I mean, this this always used to be a, a theme that a lot of historians like to touch on, the, the kind of had FDR died. I mean, there's one version of the story that had, had he not died, that is, had he lived longer. One version of the story that actually has to do with the creation of Israel, which is quite interesting. The other version of the story is normally, well, there wouldn't be a Cold War, right? You hear this sometimes, right? Had FDR died, there might not have been a Cold War. Um, well, I mean, the interesting part about this to me is that I suppose you know, if, if he were a, a different type of individual in much better health than he was, so you could actually see him, let's say, serving out a term to 1948, for example, I suppose, if you want to spin out the counterfactual that far into the future from 1945, um, I suppose there is maybe a certain argument that could be made that um, the Cold War would have at least looked radically different. Friend. Effectively, that is, uh, there would have still only been one side fighting it. <laughs> that is to say, it was Truman basically decided that the U.S. would, to some extent, kind of fight back a little bit. That is, that the U.S. would no longer simply agree to every one of Stalin's demands. I mean, so the example, a couple of the examples I give, um, I mean, they do decide they will defend, of course, South Korea, you know, at the at the parallel, at the 38th parallel. They do decide they're not going to let uh, Stalin have a share in the occupation of Hokkaido, the northernmost of the kind of the, the main islands of Japan, um, that they are going to draw these lines and that the U.S. is going to kind of, you know, stand up now for for its clients. Um, yeah, I'm not sure Roosevelt would have would have made those same stands. I mean, there there's some signs of almost a, it's not an awakening Exactly. But, you know, Roosevelt was getting a, a bit annoyed with Stalin shortly before he died, mostly because Stalin accused him of double dealing with the Germans behind his back. And this is one thing he'd always had pride in, that he was just as tough on the Germans as, as Stalin was. Um, you know, had there been, you know, maybe uh, there might have been some break that occurred at some point where eventually Roosevelt did think that Stalin had gone too far in one area or another. Um, I don't see it uh, being carried out in quite the same way as, as I think it would have been with Truman. I mean, the really fascinating question is what might have happened with uh, with Japan. I mean, that is where, although you can see Truman taking a harder line vis-a-vis -vis Stalin, both in Korea um, and on Hokkaido than probably Roosevelt would have done, um, it, unconditional surrender, which Truman in the end was kind of true to vis-a-vis uh, -vis Japan, was after all Roosevelt's doctrine. So it's hard to see Roosevelt necessarily... Um, agreeing to any type of a softening or a compromise peace with Japan, uh, which might have kept uh, Stalin out of Asia. I don't think Roosevelt would have necessarily had qualms about using the atomic bomb. I mean, after all, he had green-lighted the Manhattan Project and so on and so forth. Um, I do think Stalin probably would have ended up getting an even more generous deal in Asia and in Europe so that he, he would have been in a stronger position. I think inevitably, whether it was with you know FDR dying in perhaps 46, 47, 48, or a new president coming in, I do think inevitably sometimes type of Cold War uh, probably would have transpired. But um, the uh, uh, the opening positions, I think, might have been quite different had Roosevelt lived a bit longer. Yeah. So we've been going uh, uh, pretty much chronologically. I just want to go back a, a little bit, just to 1941. Uh, so you talk a little bit uh, in the book and in the notes about the uh, the icebreaker theory. So this is from a uh, uh, Russian author named uh, Viktor uh, uh, Suvorov. Um, and the idea was that Hitler... Uh, Operation Barbarossa was a preemptive attack. Now, I, I get from the book that you don't buy that, but from the book and from our discussion of the of Stalin not joining the tripartite pact, I think you do believe that Stalin thought war with Nazi Germany was inevitable. Is that, is that, is that the difference between you and the icebreaker theory, that the people who believe in the icebreaker theory think that uh, it was uh, the Soviet invasion was imminent, while you, well, you tend to think that if Stalin wasn't planning for something, he at least, you know, thought that there was going to be a war at some point and was getting ready for that. 
Well, right. I mean, I certainly don't agree with the full-on nature of sort of a premeditated plan. I mean, even some of the historians inspired, a lot of them are Russian, actually, the ones who've looked into the evidence regarding Soviet war planning and procurement. Um, they've never been able to find some sort of a smoking gun regarding a specific date, like a launch date. Uh, some of them have actually proposed dates where they think the Soviets would have been ready, uh, that is, to fight. Um, what I actually do tend to think, aside from the question about the, the break in Berlin in November 1940 that we talked about earlier, um, is that, first of all, the Soviets were absolutely planning for war and preparing for war with Nazi Germany. Um, you can see this just in, in the kind of the procurement and in the deployment, uh, the Soviet mobilization pattern, such as it was in 1941. I mean, the building of this vast number of air bases is close to the German Reich, uh, the stationing of armor, you know, all the new kind of tanks and motorized vehicles and petrol stations. Uh, it's clear they're preparing for war. I don't think they know how it's going to start. Um, you know, the, the, two, the two problems I have, I suppose, with this kind of, you might call it almost like the, the full-on version of the Suvorov thesis about um, you know, the icebreaker, as you call it, is that, first of all, I don't think Hitler saw it as a preventive war. That is to say, although the Germans had good intelligence on some of the Soviet deployment near the frontier. I don't think the Germans had any any intelligence uh, suggesting an imminent Soviet invasion. That is to say, the, the, Hitler was not himself preempting a Soviet attack. That part is untrue. Um, the other part, which I think is, is also problematic, although it's a little bit more subtle, um, is that I don't think the Soviets were, uh, were planning the same type of, that is, full-out assault without any kind of prior warning or preparation. If you look at the uh, both the kind of the war gaming and then also the war plan coming out of the Soviet, uh, their version of, of, of the general staff, it's not precisely the same as OKW in the Soviet case, but the, their version of this kind of the planning is that they seem to think that the Germans would telegraph an attack and this would give them time to counter. Um, but it would be an aggressive counter. Like the key phrase that keeps coming up is a powerful strike in the direction of Lublin. This coming from the kind of the southwestern Ukrainian front targeting southeastern Poland with, with Lublin as the initial target. Um, and so there, there's definitely talk of this. And in fact, the amazing thing is they actually do order this. I mean, like when after the Germans invade, Stalin does order this. I mean, the powerful strike in the direction of Lublin on the southwestern front is actually ordered. You know, so to some extent, they actually did carry out the war plan they had been planning to out. The problem was that, you know, the rapidity and speed and, and ferocity of, of the German assault, that's what preempted any Soviet ability to counter. Um, they were planning to counterattack, and they were hoping to go on the offensive in fairly rapid order, um, but that didn't happen. It's just the, the plan, which was probably not, not ready, not anywhere near fruition, uh, was, was just kind of rendered um, almost entirely moot. Um, by the ferocity of the German advance. And the, the, the one thing that I found, which I think is quite telling, is in the Soviet, the so-called special files of the Politburo, you can see that they realize how close the Germans are to invading in the last week or so before Barbarossa, and they do issue these last-minute orders for kind of Maskirovka, you know, for camouflaging all the tank parks and petrol stations and aerodromes. The target dates are for various points in July 1941, and so in, in every case, they're, you know, two, three, or four weeks too late, uh, even in terms of the camouflaging. So it's clear they weren't ready. Um, you know, for whatever war was coming. They knew some kind of war was coming. They didn't know exactly when, and they weren't ready when the Germans attacked. 
Yeah, and and I think with the Sovarov hypothesis, I mean, it relies on a lot of the idea that they had weapons and the Soviets had weapons on the Western flank that were better, like they trained a lot of parachutists, so uh, weapons and sort of uh, warfighting, uh, war fighting, um, you know, methodologies they were using, uh, uh, you know, kinds kinds of uh, kinds of military personnel that they were better for offense than defense. But I mean, that's not that mysterious when you consider that the Soviet Union had invaded a lot of countries, right? So it wasn't just necessarily against Germany, invading countries and being opportunistic in that, in that front, you know, was sort of, was sort of the thing that they normally did. Um, and another, I mean, another thing that I, 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 another reason I find it sort of hard to believe is that, you know, invading another, you know, great power like that, like, you know, the way that Hitler did in Operation Barbarossa, I mean, is a pretty radical gamble. And if you look at Stalin's foreign policy, I mean, he was certainly ruthless and he was uh, certainly opportunistic. But there's never any evidence of just, you know, uh, just this sort of uh, recklessness that we find in, say, Operation Barbarossa. Does that psychological argument of why you think Stalin, you know, does that psychological argument of sort of Stalin's nature versus Hitler's make sense to you? As, as Do you factor that in at all in how you think about uh, uh, the Superoff's theory? No, I, I think that's quite right. And you look at even the way the, the Stalin behaved when they invaded Finland, even though that was the, the nearest equivalent to a kind of one of those invasions where the other side actually fought back as opposed to the more opportunistic invasions of Eastern Poland, where there was some fighting, but the Germans had already mostly destroyed the Polish armies or the Baltic states of Romania. Um, Stalin hesitated. Uh, that is to say, he, he realized that there were real risks, even in invading a country such as Finland. Um, there was obviously a, a level of caution involved, and you could even see that in the way he ended the war in Finland once he thought he was at at risk of igniting the wrath of, of Britain and, and France against him. So that, yeah, there was also a, a more cautious element to Stalin's foreign policy. I mean, you can see this even playing out in the spheres of influence negotiated at Tehran and, and Yalta, where, again, there's normally this argument that, oh, well, look, there's nothing the Americans could have done because of the all-conquering Red Army. Uh, no, in fact, the negotiations mattered. Stalin did not want to cross whatever lines had been uh, agreed to um, uh, by, by Roosevelt um, in the case of, of Asia in particular, and even to some extent in Eastern Europe, where you know he, he wasn't following to, to the letter every single agreement made at, at Tehran and Yalta, but he was kind of operating within those boundaries. I think that's quite right. I mean, Hitler was a gambler uh, in a way that Stalin really wasn't. Uh, that's why I do think that I also think Stalin had a better sense of kind of public relations and diplomacy than Hitler did in the sense that he understood how important it was not to appear to be the aggressor. So that's why I do think it might have been wishful thinking, but I think what, what Stalin was hoping and expecting and, and his generals were kind of preparing for, again, perhaps forlornly and, and naively, was that the German would telegraph some massive assault and still take on the onus of aggressor, but the Soviets would have a kind of immediate devastating counterattack ready. Um, I think that, to the extent there was any plan, was probably it. But of course, that left them somewhat at the mercy of German initiative. Yeah. So... I mean, this, yeah, this is all, I mean, fascinating. Another thing about Hitler was, I mean, he, you know, it's, it's amazing how you have, so you have this whole thing where Hitler, you know, almost gets to Moscow, you know, he's within, I don't know, like 80 miles or something. And then, you know, Stalin and the Soviets, they, they turn it back and they eventually get to Berlin. And you think at some point the two sides could negotiate? Uh, do you think? Do you think it was so? On, on the Western front, I, I get the impression that on the Western front, Hitler was more ready to make a deal, while the U.S. Uh, and the British were more uh, inflexible. While on the Eastern front, 
I think that Stalin was more flexible while sort of the uh, Germany never really explored. I, I think, you know, through, throughout the uh, throughout the conflict, Hitler was always sort of thinking, OK, we're going to have one good offensive and then we're going to negotiate from a position of strength. I think, you know, after Kurtz, it, it never really happens. They're, they're just always on the defensive after uh, from that point on. Uh, would you say that's accurate or do you think about it differently? I think that's fairly accurate. There definitely were overtures. There were negotiations during the war. I mean, really on both sides. In the case of, of Hitler and Stalin, back channels would periodically meet in Stockholm or elsewhere up in Scandinavia. In the case of the Western Allies, there were various meetings in places like Spain and Istanbul and at times kind of feelers being extended through through the Vatican from one side to the other. There was a lot of intrigue in Switzerland, some of the with kind of the the, the plotters against Hitler. Um, and, you know, one can make either too much or too little of all of these things. Um, in the case of, let's say, the Soviet-German negotiations, we know a lot about the negotiations shortly before, of course, when maybe the two sides really were just kind of feeling each other out while still, of course, preparing for yet more Armageddon on the Eastern Front. Um, I do think Stalin was, in that sense, a pragmatist. I mean, that is to say, yes, had some type of deal with Hitler been possible that would have enabled him to, to gain a lot of what he wanted to gain in Eastern Europe. Uh, I mean, obviously, he did that in 1939. We have a precedent for that, of course. So would he have been willing to, to countenance a similar deal at some point in 1942 or 1943, or maybe even earlier in 1941? I think absolutely. I mean, there was even some talk of Barry opening up negotiations when, when Moscow was under threat in October, November 1940. Um, you know, I think the Germans, of course, when they felt like they had Stalin kind of on the mat, uh, nearly defeated in 1941, would not have been uh, willing to kind of countenance those type of negotiations. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I think Stalin would have been willing to cut almost any type of deal, again, just depending on the, the lay of the land and the order of battle and, and what he could get out of it. Um, I think Hitler was a lot more impulsive and kind of harder to predict. And so it's, it's harder to make a kind of a firm judgment uh, one way or the other. Um, I do think all along, if you're going back to 1939, 1940, no, I don't think Hitler was you know, as concerned with, let's say, the new German territories in Western Europe as he was with the East. I think he, he definitely would have been flexible. We, we could see that in the the fears he extended to Great Britain after the after the battle after the fall of France. Um, no, I think he, he certainly would have been willing, to, and obviously the German resistance figures would have absolutely been willing to barter away kind of France and the Low Countries. Um, no, I think in the end most of those negotiations foundered on some of it was on stubbornness and pride, and then just the you know, the investment. I mean, so much blood had been shed on the Eastern Front. Um, you know, it, it would have been hard, I think, for either side to. Uh, surrender their gains. Um, but uh, yes, I haven't looked as closely into the German side as the Soviet side. I definitely think Stalin would have been willing to negotiate it at multiple toy points during the war, you know, if he could have gotten some type of a favorable deal out of it. I, I think he, in that sense, you know, he had no, he certainly had no moral scruples about about uh, coming to some type of agreement with Hitler. I mean, as, as is proven, of course, by the agreement he did have it with Hitler between 1939 and 1941. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, the, one of the things I mean, just think it made me think back to uh, another one of sort of FDR's blunders was the Morgenthau plan. And this comes out and, you know, after uh, I think in uh, early 1945 or late 1944, the idea that they're just going to starve the Germans, basically deindustrialize the country um, and then the Germans fight harder. Right. Um, and then FDR changes his mind because it comes out and he there's a political backlash, right? So it just sort of backs up everything. FDR being being a blunder, making these making these uh, two sort of uh, this, this being two uh, two sort of uh, uh, 
to sort of uh, willing to please Stalin and at the same time sort of just not really being principled and just you know sort of going with the with the political winds do you, do you think there's a um uh do you think there's a broader lesson about democracies in, in wartime because you, you mentioned you mentioned in passing earlier that the uh, Soviets were a lot more seemed a lot more flexible than the Western allies I think Germany could have been more flexible I mean if it if it wanted if it wanted to it was flexible in a way I mean it could it could ask the Soviets to join the tripartite attack and then attack the Soviet Union but so do, do, do you think that there's you know a broader lesson here that sort of you know you hype people up about fighting this great war and then if you're dependent on public opinion it's harder to turn the ship around compared to say uh, Hitler and Stalin who could just turn the propaganda you talk about them turning it on and off depending on whether they're friends or enemies oh I think it's certainly harder in a democratic country. I mean, what's, what is interesting about this is you know, I've heard from, uh, you know, some sort of readers or critics of the book that um, let's say we have to be, you know, more fair to let's say Churchill and Roosevelt in that they did have to worry about public opinion, which did limit the choices possible to them. And there's obviously some, some truth to that, but there's also the sense in which they could both be quite opportunistic. Um, you know, that is to say, uh, Roosevelt, it's not that he lived, it's not that there was some massive public uh, support or outcry or kind of burgeoning groundwell of support for something like, let's say, the Lend-Lease Doctrine or let's say 1940, 41. Uh, you know, if you actually look at the trends in public opinion with the growth of the America First movement and all the rest of it, there was not some groundswell of, of opinion that said the U.S. should get more deeply involved in the European world. Uh, his people, you know, they look after uh, Barbarossa and they look very specifically at this question of lend aid for the Soviet Union and, and they determine there's a clear majority opposed to his policy of aid in the Soviet Union. So the thing is, like, I think when democratic leaders want to ignore public opinion, they can't ignore it. Um, that, that said, it does constrain them to some extent. That is to say, they can't, I mean, if they are going to ignore it, they have to have a very good reason for doing so. So, and they have to be quite careful in the way that they manipulate public opinion and sell their policies. That is, it's harder to do that than to do something uh, that is the opposite. But I do think you're right in that there's a kind of momentum that develops once the U.S. is in the war, once Britain is in the war. Again, before the war starts, there isn't necessarily a groundswell of opinion in favor of fighting it. I mean, that's very rarely the case. Once the war is on and people have started to lose loved ones and blood has been shed and there's kind of this sense of just the demonization of the enemy in terms of the wartime propaganda, then yes, I do think in a democratic country, you do start to get, and again, sometimes it's not even necessarily what the public really thinks, as it's what the statesmen think the public thinks. You know, that, So that is to say, Roosevelt probably convinced himself that, you know, he couldn't possibly be seen to be, you know, soft, uh, you know, that unconditional surrender, even if there was no public groundswell of opinion behind it or the Morgenthau plan, that that he couldn't be seen to be soft or back down. On the other hand, you have this contrary evidence, right, that he does back down in the course of an election campaign. He is, after all, up for re-election in fall 1944. And he is, to some extent, forced to back down by his opponent, uh, by Dewey, because it does look like the Morgenthau plan has backfired and the Germans are fighting harder. You know, so that does argue that at times maybe maybe public opinion could play a role in sort of you know, staying the hand or steadying the hand of statesmen. But but again, contrary to that too, I think he only pretended to withdraw the doctrine. I think he actually still supported it. In fact, it was still right there in the kind of the Joint Chiefs Handbook for dealing with occupied Germany. Um, they didn't, you know, publicly it was walked back. Um, I do think the administration remained committed to it. And you know, he says right before he dies, he tells Morgenthau, "I'm with you 100." Yes. Um, 
Yes. Well, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's right. You said that was his last, you know, known statement on uh, foreign policy, which is which is fascinating. Um, the uh, yeah. So that, so that's another. I mean, fascinating card factor. So you think if you think if FDR lived and you know was healthy and all that, something like the Morgenthau plan well, was possible. I mean, it's hard to it's hard to imagine. I mean, it's hard to imagine American public opinion going uh, along with that. But on the other hand, if you just have Stalin, I mean, if you just have Germany to Stalin, I guess you could be as brutal as you want, uh, which doesn't seem outside the realm of possibility given how Roosevelt behaved. Uh, can you can you talk a little bit about that? And sort of the possibilities for for Germany had, had Roosevelt lived. Well, I mean, I suppose officially, it, it, some version of it was still U.S. policy even after Roosevelt died. That is to say, denazification and and the kind of the general punishment of, of Germany, uh, if not the dismemberment of Germany. But yeah, as far as the overall economic policy, obviously, in the end, the U.S. goes the other way, and you know, they paved the way for the for the Marshall Plan and the kind of rehabilitation of of what later becomes West Germany um, as part of. The Western Alliance. Um, it's hard to say. I mean, I do think that things would have begun to change also politically. You know, Roosevelt was willing to go against the grain of public opinion, but I think only up to a point. Um, and yeah, I don't think the U.S. public, once they got wind of what was going on in Germany, would have would have approved of a policy of pure retribution to the extent of of uh, massive deindustrialization. Particularly once they looked at all the damage in Western Europe, and you know, they were desperate for kind of economic recovery, and obviously a market for U.S. exports and, and all the rest of it. Um, I think a lot of those policies kind of forged in the heat of the moment during the war would have come to see, to, to, to look a little bit different, I think, you know, in the light after the end of the war. I mean, I said Roosevelt, he could be quite stubborn. Um, you know, you could see Roosevelt, let's say, just going a little bit longer with uh, the kind of the, the punishment phase and the denazification phase and not as quickly allowing the rehabilitation of certain former German government officials or Nazi party members, rocket scientists, and so on, that the U.S. eventually decided that they kind of needed on their side for the Cold War. Um, I think, you know, again, things might not have been radically different two years later, but I think maybe in the first couple of months, he might have been a little bit more stubborn about sticking to the letter of of the policy than than probably Truman was. Yeah. So yeah. So I mean, we've talked. I mean, a lot about the book. I, let me just uh, close by asking you a few uh, general questions. Uh, does this? I mean, do, how do do you take lessons from what you've learned in your study, your research of World War II, and how you think about American foreign policy more generally? You know, your your specialist, uh, uh, your your specialist in certain time periods. But when you, uh, but you must develop some priors that you take with you to think about other issues, other historical things, or things that are going on now that you don't have time to investigate in depth. Uh, how is, has that changed in any way for you uh, through your study of World War II? Well, I think that in the case of U.S. foreign policy, and I wouldn't want to draw any too broad, sweeping generalization kind of pat lessons, but I do think there's an element in which um, the U.S., despite its kind of awe-inspiring destructive power in the world, as far as its, its uh, you know, obviously its weaponry, particularly going back to 1945 and the Cold War, still remains a little bit of a babe in the woods. That is to say, very easily manipulated. Um, you know, that, that, I mean, I think Kennan had that great metaphor about the U.S. as what was a sort of the sleeping dragon, you know, guarding its treasure. But once aroused, it, it uh, reaches out in all directions, breathing fire indiscriminately with, with very little regard for the consequences. And I think there's clearly something to that, um, that the U.S. does have this vast amount of power in the world, um, which unfortunately is 
is often either ill-directed or kind of somewhat confusingly directed and that the U.S. is very easily, I think, manipulated into carrying out policies that might benefit other foreign actors but don't always necessarily uh, benefit the United States as well. I mean, I do wish we had a little bit more of a robust, uh, whatever one wants to call it, kind of either commonsensical or realist foreign policy tradition so that the U.S. does not always have to be on some crusade on behalf of some ideal, which is usually counterproductive anyway. Um, you know, that is to say, I, I don't think we have a great track record. Um, I think that you can even see some of the precedents being set during the war. And, and to be fair, I mean, some of it was set by Britain in the case of Mihailovich and Yugoslavia, but you can see what the U.S. does vis-a-vis Chiang Kai-shek and, you know, later plays out with Batista in Cuba or Gojin Jem in Vietnam. You know, the U.S. very often uh, carries out policies which are, are utterly incoherent. Um, and I think that maybe this is the problem about making foreign policy in a democracy. Um, it's not just that it's inconsistent, but that, again, the leaders, maybe they think they're following public opinion. Maybe they think they're shaping public opinion. Maybe they just convince themselves the public thinks one thing versus another. Um, but in the end, I think it's just it's that temptation of power. It's a little bit like the God complex, you know, that the U.S. thinks it can shape the world in a more positive direction. And unfortunately, the results are not always quite so happy. Yeah. Do you think do you think that's in part because maybe it just doesn't matter to us all that much. I mean, whatever the U.S. did during World War II, I mean, our survival as a nation, you know, was was not at stake. So if it's something, if foreign policy is just not important to you, but you, because of your wealth, you know, you have this uh, awesome power. I mean, isn't that sort of a recipe just for for recklessness and not uh, lack of careful thinking and, and how you interact with the world? Well, right. I mean, in that sense, there's less skin in the game than there, there is for these countries in Eastern Europe. I mean, that actually calls to mind uh, a, a quote. I talked about McLean and Churchill, Fitzroy McLean, and the way they talk about Yugoslavia. And the, the quote that McLean was dining out on to the end of his days was that he and Churchill supposedly discussed this. And they, they basically said, well, look, do you plan on making your home in Yugoslavia after the war? And McLean says no, and Churchill says neither do I. So it doesn't <laughs> matter to us, you know. That is, you know, it's, it's really no business of ours who who governs Yugoslavia. And well, to some extent, I, I get that argument. Sure, I mean, may, but then if that's the case, then why have you decided to arm the communists? You know, that yeah. is to say, if it doesn't matter to you, then then don't choose sides, right? And that that used to be, I guess, the argument in favor of neutrality or the neutrality acts of the 1930s was effectively that the U.S maybe wasn't wise enough to make these decisions. And so the U.S. should just trade and be a kind of maritime commercial nation and, and not choose sides and play God. Um, and I, 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 you, you're, you're definitely onto something there. I think you're right that uh, that maybe there is eventually blowback in the case of the U.S. getting sucked into eventually uh, trying to be arbiter in the affairs of Europe and spending these huge sums of money in the Cold War propping up regimes all over the world. I mean, in that sense, it did affect the U.S. Right. But you're right that in terms of actually affecting the lives of most American civilians, maybe right, it's water under the bridge. That's one of the reasons why I, I do projects like this is I, I do try to capture the perspective of the people around the world who are actually affected by the foreign policies of the great powers um, that, you know, they, they might come out of these conflicts unscathed and, and they can tell themselves these soothing stories and myths about the good war. But um you know, the consequences aren't, aren't always so happy for, for people living in other countries. Yeah. How, how have um, you talked a little bit about reviewers and how historians have reacted to your book? I mean, has, has there any has there been any uh, sort of extreme reactions out there? Because you are going after some sacred cows or or historians, you know, are historians, uh, uh, you know, will, you know, are, are historians sort of more accepting of, of, of these positions than people would think? No, a lot of the British historians have gone off the handle about it. But oddly enough, it's mostly about Finland. I, I'm not 
quite sure why they're so obsessed about the Finnish story. Um, but yeah, and it's not even necessarily the Churchill cult per se. I think it's just this idea that this was kind of Britain's, their version of the good war, I suppose, the finest hour myth. And, you know, this, this is the, a huge part of the national story of Britain. And well, in, in, in Russia, it's not so much the historians as the Putin government. My, my book has apparently been denounced on channel one live on air. And, um, you know, so they are the great patriotic war story or myth, whatever we want to call it. I mean, it is a huge part of this increasingly important part of the government over there. Um, I do find that I, I understand it to some extent. I mean, look, I mean, all countries have to tell them themselves stories. And you know, if we don't have anything positive to believe in, in our own national stories, I mean, it, it becomes just hard to kind of, I suppose, summon up patriotism, uh, to summon up some type of pride and faith in our country. Um, but I just wish people would, I think, find different things to, uh, to have pride in. Um, <laughs> Than slightly, I mean, in the case of the Russians, I get the pride and sacrifice, but I mean, just the the immense damage done, first of all, to his own citizens, you know, by Stalin's policies in the war. Um, in the case of the U.S. and Britain, I, yeah, it's more ambiguous. I mean, I, I I see the good war arguments. I see why the Holocaust story has kind of become more and more important. That this is a part of this moral crusade and putting this evil regime to an end. And I see why people do, well, why they're comforted. Um, uh, by that story. Um, but uh, first of all, not all wars are that simple and that edifying. And I think even this war, again, if you look more closely at it, is, is not quite so simple, pat, and edifying in, um, in the good war uh, message uh, once you look a little more closely at the granular details. Yeah, I think, I think some people who, who listen to this might be surprised that uh, British historians like Churchill because they have this idea of sort of left uh, uh, academics being more left wing. But I found that people who actually do sort of the diplomatic history are tend to be more conservative than people who do a lot of the other stuff, which has just been, you know, uh, has gone into other directions. Uh, so right. I, and that's says my, my book offends precisely the people most likely to read it. <laughs> so yeah, it, 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 def, it definitely, in that sense, it, it sort of uh, argues against uh, constituency. That is to say, the people that tend to read books about the Second World War, they yeah. do tend to be, you know, your passionate sort of Churchill admirers. Um, and it's not that everything I say about Churchill is negative, but obviously a lot of it has kind of stirred the pot, shall we say. Yeah. And I think the difference maybe the British and the American reactions, the American conservatives at least have the Cold War and they have Reagan and they have, you know, that story of them saving the world. So maybe you, uh, World War II gets a little but superseded, although it's important. While well, if you're, you know, if you're the British, I don't think I don't think you think you won the Cold War. You, know? <laughs> you still need yeah. World War II as your as your final moment, as your uh, right. as your finest moment. <laughs> so yeah, so this was I mean this was fun. Uh, uh, what are you working on now? Or do you have any 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 more projects you can tell us about? Not really quite sure yet. I mean, I've been tossing around various kind of ideas and projects dealing with uh, the Second World War. Um, nothing is quite sort of coalesced yet. But I think this time it, this was such a big book. And it, it took such a lot out of me. I think I'm going to take a little bit more of a of a pause before I move forward. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, I mean, you deserve it. I mean, I found this book fascinating. I recommend everyone everyone read it. Uh, St Stalin's War: A New History of World War II. It's a long book, but it's real fast. And I think you know, if you have any interest in the history of the period at all, you'll, you'll greatly benefit. Uh, th thanks, John, for joining us. Thanks for having me on, Richard. It was great fun.